available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner, gonna try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together, we are the Podcast of Champions, talking all things Pac-12 football. we got a Bay Area-centric show for you today. We're going to talk Stanford. We're going to talk Cal. We also want to answer your questions. So if you have an e- you want to email us, you got something on your mind, you want to talk Pac-12 football, Pac12podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you write that down. Send it to us. Or you can call or text if you'd rather do that. 424-532-0678 is the number. You can call or leave us a voicemail. You leave us a voicemail with a call or send us a text. Uh, you can also tweet us at Pac12podcast. And, of course, the website, Pac12podcast.com, where you have all the old episodes up there. And please go to iTunes and subscribe. Leave us a a five-star review. That would be awesome. I don't know if we have any good ones lately, Dave, but uh, we usually do. So thank you for leaving those reviews. Nothing, nothing new, nothing important to report except um, here. Hang on. I want to pull up the exact phrasing because this is important. Ryan. Oh, okay. We don't want to hang on. We don't want to get Just, sued. Hey, no, we don't. We, we wouldn't want to get sued by one of our, one of our fine listeners. All right. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. I, and I, I, this is from uh, the great, the wonderful, Ryan underscore Dutter, subject line pod. Um, the 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 body of the text reads David the man. Oh, I just wanted to share that one with you, Ryan. That was that was the only text we had. Though. That was the only one. That was the only <laughs> the only review we've gotten. Uh, well, there were a couple other ones, but that's the really important one, Ryan. Oh, so that was an iTunes review. That was an iTunes. Yes. Oh, okay, gotcha. Um. Well, that's exciting. Uh, so, okay. So like I said, we're going to, we'll probably, we'll answer your questions like later on in the show. There's a couple subjects we probably need to address. Dennis Dodd wrote a pretty scathing piece about the Pac-12 going all Shark Tank and stuff. And also John Wilner uh, broke on Friday that there's going to be an external review of uh, officiating. And it looks like not just going to be for football, maybe for basketball too. The athletic directors looked it uh, seems like they're kind of fed up too. So that should be some interesting stuff coming on soon. But we want to talk Bay Area schools. So we're going to start uh, with the California Golden Bears. And we have Shannon Carroll here from BearTerritory.net. You can follow her on Twitter at B-Y-S Carroll, C-A-R-R-O-L-L. Shannon, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. Yes, we are very excited to talk some Cal football. Um mostly to figure out what, if anything, they're going to do to have a functional offense this year. Um, so starting off, you're at day one. This is day one of spring ball. How are the yeah. quarterbacks looking? What are, what, are we, what are we looking at here? Well, don't ask Coach Wilcox because the answer is basically we're looking for improvement all over the field, and that includes with the quarterbacks. So about as non-answer and non-answer as you can get Um, the room is pretty small. You've got four guys in there right now, and you're really looking at two guys at the moment, Chase Garbers, who was most of the start, like 
started most of the games last season. That was just such a weird, wonky situation that it still, you know, makes me run around in circles trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Um, and then Devon Modster, who I'm sure you guys are pretty familiar with down there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah Modster transferred out um, of UCLA. Um, I think it was midway through the season last year, um, went to a JC and now he's at uh, Cal. So he's immediately eligible, correct? Yeah. Yeah. He's immediately eligible. And it's funny if you talk to, to Cal football fans, most of their memories of him are not pleasant because he beat Cal in a game mm-hmm. that kept the bears from a bowl game. So oh. they're kind of, yes. Yeah. So it's kind of funny seeing him now wearing the Cal uniform being like, yeah, sorry. I, I, Kept you guys from that last game, but you know, now, now we're all teammates and it's all, all fine and dandy. So those are the two, um, no Brandon McElwain. McElwain has been moved to a slash role. He was working out with the running backs today. They've talked a little bit about moving him outside, um, or even, you know, having him throw a couple passes here and there, but I'd expect him mostly to be a running back. Um, which, so he's out of the room and then the other two guys you have in the room, um, I mean, you could see something from them, but I expect it to be kind of the focus on Garbers and Modster. And I expect the quarterback competition to continue throughout spring and maybe even to fall camp. The uh, So spring fall started today, which is February 25th. What is the schedule like? And then when, when is the spring game? How's that, how's that work? So it's a pretty tight schedule. We've got practices here Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and then the spring game, I believe, is March 15th. So they get this all done pretty quickly and get it done before spring break and whatnot, which I know was kind of a focus for this coaching staff to get it early and get it all all done pretty quickly for them. Um, so McIlwain moving to sort of a slash role is interesting to me because watching him last year, I mean, obviously has some arm talent, can do some things wildcat wise, but, um, decision make accurate were all issues. But when I was watching Garbers last year, it wasn't a whole lot better, especially towards the end of the year. Um, how much uh, from your assessment of just watching Cal last year, how much do you think they just, I mean, Bo Baldwin and company, do you think they're at all to blame for kind of the offensive issues or do you really think it was a quarterback talent issue? Oh, I think it was just a whole host of issues. And I think that you have to include the coaches and and some of that in there. I think Cal didn't have a lot of talent at certain positions. And when you're looking at even the wide receivers and then their three top wide receivers were out for parts of the season, they just had no explosiveness. So then they were forcing the quarterbacks to have to try to be something that they probably wasn't natural to them. And I think that kind of contributed to things spiraling. And then as the season wore on and they're like, well, we're really screwed on offense. Let's try to make something else happen. And I just think there was a lot of disconnect, a lot of uncomfort. And I think that they're kind of just thinking about a hard reset in terms of the offense this season. Hard reset, probably not a bad. (laughs) bad (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and then uh, well, the other thing, Ross Bowers is also gone, right? Yes, yes. He has announced his intention to transfer. Um, he's still enrolled at Cal. That was something cool. The Cal coaching staff was like, yeah, finish your degree, do all that jazz. Um, and he'll, he, yeah, he won't be around. So uh, what you mentioned the transfer portal. Um, 
what uh, the, what's been the role of the transfer portal so far? Is there a bunch of guys in there, a bunch of guys coming in or out? Like, how's that been working? So Cal has Modster. They landed Kakoa Crawford, the former Michigan wideout, and then Isaiah Humphreys, a safety slash cornerback from Penn State. Um, Cal has talked about how they're still very much in the market for people through the transfer portal, um, just because, especially in offense, they need guys who can come in immediately just to do something, anything kind of thing. Um, so they're still looking. They were really quiet at National Signing Day. They just added Isaiah Humphreys. That was the only addition after the early signing period. Um, so they're they're still very much trying to figure out who, if anyone, they can bring in to help out. Got it. And, um, I mean, defensively, obviously, that was Cal's strength. Yeah. Um, I think my S&P Plus standards had, I think, the second best defense in the Pac-12 last year after Washington. Um, And kind of a similar type defense to Washington. When you're looking at what they have to replace this year, where are the pain points? What are they looking to um, see emerge this spring. Um, I know up front, it seems like they lost a little bit. What, what, what do you, what do you see as the main positions where they need to find some answers? In terms of defense, they're looking pretty set. They really lost, uh, Jordan Kanashik, whose loss will be felt deeply just because of what he brought to the team on the field and just who he was off the field in terms of his leadership. He was the last guy in the locker room. He was always watching film, very cerebral. um, And that was a a really good balance to kind of the wildness of Evan Weaver. Um, (laughs) And so he, uh, his loss will be felt. They did land um, Coin Dang, who was considered one of the top outside Juco linebackers in the country. And they're actually using him as an inside linebacker. And even though his body type doesn't really seem like an inside linebacker, um, they seem to really like the way that he kind of fills that Jordan Kanashik role on the outside. Alex Funches is gone. The funny thing, and, and, you know, Alex Funches is, is awesome. The thing that is great is that Cal gets back Cameron Good, who before last season, if you had asked me who Cal's best player was, I would have said Cam Good, and then he got injured for the season in the very first game. So it just it's one of those what-if situations, like what could Cal's defense had done last season if Cam Good had still been around? Um, and then they lose someone up front. So the losses really aren't felt I mean, they have guys who can step into those roles immediately and make a difference. So I don't expect there to be much drop off for the defense next season. What overall, you talk about some of the losses, uh, Shannon, mm-hmm. who, do you, who do you think were like the biggest losses coming off the team just overall? I mean, in terms, probably Jordan Kanoshik, um, just because he was such a good player. He was such a good teammate. He was one of the leaders on the team. And in that regard, Pat Laird, too, just because of, of who he was on the field. I mean, he's one of the world's just good guys uh, and, and just so beloved by everyone. And the running back room is looking a little sad at the moment. So he'll probably be felt his loss will probably be felt pretty strongly there. And then um, kind of on the flip side of that, when you're talking about potentially impact guys who we don't necessarily know about yet, could be freshmen, could be incoming Juco guys, could be guys who just didn't play a lot, who are like, you know, three or four names that people should be watching out for. 
In terms of guys who are coming in now, I would say the two names to really look at would be the two incoming wide receivers who aren't here this spring, but will be here summer and fall. I mentioned Kakoa Crawford and the other is Trevon Clark, who is from, I believe, El Camino College. And so just because of the way things are right now at wide receiver, I think those are two guys who can make a day one impact because they kind of need to be able to make a day one impact. Um, Another guy who Cal football fans probably know, but everyone else might not know, is uh, Travion Beck, Cal's nickelback, who is absolutely not lacking for confidence. Uh, He has shown (laughs) up wearing like a white polar bear jacket and is just a hoot to talk to. Um, And he is just integral in Cal's secondary and um, makes a big difference when he's on the field. Yeah, the... um as far as like spring football started this morning, mm-hmm. where would you say like the where, where's most of your attention going to be? I mean, you know, we talked about the quarterbacks and stuff, but is there certain areas that you're just going to watch or any any big storylines? If you're a fan of Cal or maybe you're a fan of Stanford or whoever, somebody else in the Pac-12, <laughs> uh, what what should you be paying attention to? What Cal's doing? Well, you know, just to entertain myself, I watch the secondary and the linebackers because those are just the fun positions. Like the secondary just has so much fun. They're so good. Um, they're coached by Gerald Alexander, who is just enjoyable to be around. So that is always a fun group just to kind of watch to see what they can do because they all say that they're going to get better. And I'm looking at their stats from last year thinking, okay, I'm I'm curious to see how you guys pull that one off. Um, And then in terms of just areas that I'm really keeping an eye on, um, it's hard, (laughs) basically the entire offense, because at running back, they're lacking some significant depth at wide receiver. They're lacking significant depth. They've got four guys right now in the tight end room and then quarterback, who knows what's happening. So there just are a whole bunch of questions circling around what the offense can do. Can the offense do anything? Um, and those are kind of what I'm hoping to see develop over the next couple of weeks and get some semblance of an answer. Cause right now I've just got question marks. What's the, uh mood of the fan base um, about Justin Wilcox and the job he's done through two years now. Um, because I know when when Cal was doing really well under Tedford, it was very offense-driven. Um, Wilcox hasn't necessarily been able to figure out the offensive right. end at all. Um, but the defense is obviously elite. Where, where does the fan base kind of stand on Wilcox uh, through two years? I think right now you kind of say cautiously optimistic. Uh, I think they like the fact that this team kind of has an identity. Um, more fans seem to be turning out to games. There seems to be kind of like, okay, well, we're better. We've got some guys. We're hopeful toward what next season could bring. I know there was some frustration that there weren't any coaching changes announced at the end of the season. Um, there was some restructuring. So Offensive coordinator Bo Baldwin is now also the quarterback's coach, which means former quarterback's coach Marcus Tuiasa-Sopo is now the tight end's coach. Um, And I think there was some frustration that there wasn't really anything done to address just the team's glaring lack of offense last season. But I think people have kind of said, okay, we'll see what he can do. Let's see with these changes, if anything happens and, and, and whatnot. I also think that right now the fan base 
is super high on Cal football because otherwise that means you have to pay attention to Cal basketball. <laughs> <and> <laughs> no one wants to pay attention to Cal basketball right now. Nice. Pac-12 basketball in general, honestly. Just, yeah. yeah. Nobody needs to watch that this year. No. I know. I was thinking I was up here. I was like, oh, okay. So football means that I don't have to think about basketball for a while. Good. Yes. That's that's yeah. good. Or, or ever again for any reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> what's the... So this is the third year uh, for Justin Wilcox, like we were talking about. What is there been much uh, coaching staff turnover this offseason? There are some rumors about maybe a change on defense um, at the defensive line. I think I've heard that Tony Tuiotti is leaving, and I think our Nebraska site has confirmed that as well. Um, so Cal's going to be bringing someone else in, which will be, I believe, the third defensive line coach in three years. Um, but Peter Sermon, uh, Tim DeRoyter, Gerald Alexander on defensive, on the defensive side of things, it's, it's stayed reasonably steady for them. What's the, the relationship between Tim DeRoyter and, and, um, and Wilcox, uh, w- how do they, d- um, mix up kind of the defensive? Cause I know Wilcox is a defensive guy. Um, and he certainly probably wants to put his stamp on things. It, it, does DeRoyter have pretty much, um, full control over the defense? Is there input from Wilcox? Do you have any idea what that relationship's like? I think that Wilcox has given DeRoyter a lot of freedom to kind of do what he wants with the defense. But I also think that Wilcox, because he knows defenses, because that's what he's there for is not afraid to be like, Hey, let's, let's look at this and, and work more on this and, and kind of develop into this. So I think it's heavy DeRoyter with a good dose of input from Wilcox. Cause it's interesting for, um, you know, a former guy um, to maintain as a DC for a youngish head coach for that long without being, you know, somewhat at odds if they're on the same side of the ball. So it's uh, maybe that's a sign that Wilcox is a pretty good manager of uh, people. Yeah, I think he is. I think just in terms of you hear the other staff talk about him, he's not someone who is going to micromanage. He kind of lets them go do their thing. He feels like he's brought in the right guys to do this. So he doesn't want to, you know, have too many hands in the pot and he just kind of is there to make sure everything goes smoothly. Um, last thing for me, Shannon, the, uh, want to talk about the recruiting class a little bit nationally ranked number 42, uh, came in number seven in the pack 12, uh, seven linebackers, I believe in this class, yeah. so, you know, they needed some help on defense, you know, not on the offensive side, uh, but, <laughs> But uh, 10 players from California, six from Arizona and five from Texas. That might be some of the DeRuiter stuff there, yeah. um, you know, with his ties to Texas. But what, what did you make of the recruiting class overall? I really like the class. I don't think it's a flashy class. I don't think it's a class where you're expecting a whole bunch of guys to make, you know, a day one impact. Um, but I think they've got guys who really fit the system, especially on defense, talking to them, they fit that kind of gritty, have to prove it, have to earn it mentality that Cal has really been developing. Um, and I think, especially with some of the defensive guys, it's hard not to, to just trust some of the coaches that are here, like Cal's secondary and, and even their defensive line is made up of a lot of two-star guys or Ashton Davis, who is one of Cal's top defensive guys the safety is a walk-on who basically had to beg for the chance to walk on and he's been phenomenal so you know I think defensively they really got that offensively I think they could have used a little more oomph some more firepower uh, 
but I think they tried to address that with the bringing in of transfers and whatnot. And I don't think that's necessarily sustainable, but I think that gives them a little jolt that they might need right now. Do you think they're going to be um, continuing to be active on the transfer market coming out of spring ball? Um, do you think they're still going to be looking? Or, or do they have any spots still available? They do have spots still available. And I do think that they're still going to be active mostly because I think they are very, very well aware that they need some help offensively. I think even today after practice, <laughs> one of the offensive linemen, Jake Kern, was like, yeah, we know we weren't great on offense and it sucks to have to look at the defense and, and realize that we were letting them down. And that was something that was repeated. So the offense is, is quite aware that last season was not something to put in the scrapbooks. All right. Uh, anything else, David? I think we. Uh... Nope. That's it. We picked it clean. Yes. Uh, Shannon Carroll doing a great job for bearterritory.net. Follow on Twitter by BYS Carroll. Um, thanks Bye. again. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thanks so much. Thanks, Shannon. Shannon. We appreciate it. <laughs> Bye you guys. Okay, David. So we got some Cal knowledge. Uh, next up, we got to talk some Stanford football. There are Stanford fans. We get emails from people that are Stanford people. Isn't that weird? It's bizarre. It's bizarre because you think those Stanford folks, they'd be focused on so many more important things like their <laughs> stock portfolios, all sorts of stuff like that. And if they are, they're probably interested in Robinhood. Oh, Brian. very good. Yes. Did you know that Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission free? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Well, while other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there is no minimum needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as 100 Most Popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of the Podcast of Champions a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at champions.robinhood.com. That's champions.robinhood.com. Wow, great great read, David. And you just you know, meshed it in with our Stanford talk. That, that was well uh, done. It was beautiful. And I had a different idea when I was going to start because we were leading out of Cal. So I was going to say, Hey, Cal's invested in getting a good offense. What do you want to be invested in? <laughs> but we, you gave me Stanford and you know what? I ran with Stanford. And I don't know if we know that Cal's really invested on in getting a new offense. Like they, Shannon's invested in the idea that they're invested. And that's important. That man. is, that is very true. I, I'm a little like there's still a little bit like it's one of those things where, you know, you know, there's a problem like there, you know, oh, I really got the check engine light. I got to fix it. Like the, the car's going to break down. There's something wrong. And like it's starting to make these weird noises when I slow down, like the radio shuts off or whatever, like all these things keep happening. But you keep putting off going, you know, taking it to the shop, taking it to the shop. It seems like Cal's still doing that a little bit. Like, oh, well, let's bring in some graduate transfers. We're not really going to recruit for, you know, well, let's get a bunch of linebackers, but let's not go get some stud offensive players from high school. You know, well, it seems like they're reluctant, David. Like, it, it, they didn't learn their lesson from last year. It seems risky to have a good offense. 
Just, you know, <laughs> maybe that's it. what did we learn last year about Cal football? When they try to offense, when they try too hard to offense, they lose football games. Yeah. So if you take it as a broad philosophy, don't try to offense ever. You're going to win every game. You're going to go 12 and 0. You're going to go. You're going to go the Ryan Gorsu Memorial 12 and 0. Very, very true. Uh, well, OK, so Cal's a team that shouldn't try to offense, according to, to, to David. There's a team that should try to offense maybe a little bit differently than the way they have been doing it. Uh, we, you know, and I think you know which team we're going to talk about, Dave. All right, yeah, we're going to talk Stanford, and we're going to talk it. Do you want to? Do you want to do the thing, Ryan? You want to do the thing? Oh, you ready the, with the uh, thing? Stanford Cardinal. See, I remembered the thing for once. That's you did. cool. And you call it the thing. All right, I did. Um, <laughs> all right, we're we're joined. My old friend, RJ Abadia uh, of the bootleg. He's Stanford's football and basketball insider for the bootleg. You can follow him on Twitter at RJ underscore Abadia. That's A-B-E-Y-T-I-A. RJ, how are you? I'm doing awesome. I'm sure when it's released, that will sound different, but that really sounded like a toilet flushing. <laughs> like, are you guys trying to tell me something or are you are you trying to foreshadow what you think I'm going to say? Like It's it's been our drop like since the beginning of the show basically. It what does kind of sound like a toilet flushing. RJ brings up a good point. We're going for tree falling in the woods, right? That's what it's supposed to be, yeah. But I could see toilet flushing if you've got, you know, RJ's calling this over a over a phone, so you know, maybe the audio, not so great. Yeah, we might need to look at that, Ryan. Uh, hey, RJ, what does this sound like? Does it- that sounds like a normal night at the Abraham household. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I think that's very different than this. Stanford Cardinal. I don't know what kind of what kind of fibers in RJ's diet. <laughs> well, I I think it would it would certainly be weird if you had a deep voice announcer guy announcing your trips to the bathroom like <laughs> you did for the Stanford thing. So I will admit there is a difference there. Okay, nice. Uh, well, we appreciate you coming on, uh, RJ, and talking Stanford football. We just talked to uh, Shannon Carroll. Uh, Cal started this morning, which is Monday morning. Uh, spring football Stanford uh, not till tomorrow but they've kind of a, a weird schedule where they do a couple weeks on a couple weeks off um, and the spring it's really strange spring game April 13th so everything's really spread out for the Cardinal yeah I mean part of that they, they've switched to that mode they've been roughly in that mode for the last few years at least um, just to just as a concession to spring quarter exams but this year it seems even more kind of scattered. I'm not sure if the onus is on player safety or just not wanting to have too many contact days stacked together, or they just wanted to take the whole time to evaluate or slip in a couple recruiting trips or vacations. So I don't know, but yeah, it's, it's I think fitting with the stereotypic typical perception people have of the peninsula. It's a very, it's a very leisurely schedule. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To start in February and end in mid-April is kind of, it just seems like, that seems strange. You know, like Cal, uh, I mean, well, Arizona State's going to be done in two days. Like they're done on the 28th. 
Uh, Cal's, I, I think they're cramming all theirs into like three weeks or something. So it's everyone has a different schedule in the Pac-12. It's just everyone has a different philosophy, I guess. Yes, well, it's diversity like that that has the Pac-12 where it is in the football <laughs> answer. I mean, UCLA is going to go from next week, March 5th to April 20th, which is, I mean, That's, equally yeah. pretty stupid. I mean, not stupid. It's just it's very, very long like that. Maybe we Several need to start, months. Maybe we should start collaborating. Are we, are we confident Chip Kelly and David Shaw aren't just going to be hanging out somewhere for some of this ah. time? Oh, maybe they will. Maybe they're going on vacation together. Nice fishing trip. Yeah. They're buds. Um, yeah, they yeah. are buds. David Shaw, David Shaw is a big fan of Chip Kelly. In fact, he conceded, I think, a couple Pac-12 media days ago that they've actually adopted Chip Kelly's uh, – practice cycle for for game week um so yeah no he he speaks very very highly of of chips yeah um all right well ryan's gotten his logistical questions out of the way so i will uh i will now i will now dive into the meat as it were um so stanford did some weird stuff offensively last year um it seemed like about halfway through the season there was a little bit of a shift in what they were doing um, towards the end of the season. Stanford started to have not quite, but closer to the statistical profile of something looking more like an air raid team, certainly more of a powerful air raid than, than Mike Leach is used to do with a bunch of big receivers. Airing the ball out quite a bit more. Um, what went into that? Was that a move of desperation? Does that signal a larger shift for David Shaw and company, or was it just simply the personnel available and what they had going that they just had to do that? I love those things where the guys like, I'm going to take the last question first and so on and so forth, but I honestly don't have the wherewithal to reorganize your queries, so I'm just going to try to go as, <laughs> as sequential as possible. Um, I think semi desperation. I think if you I think if you talk to most Stanford fans, the the kind of the pivot point of the season in terms of what you're saying is is the Washington State game, a game they lost, but it was a game where they came out as a predominantly first down passing team, which obviously is a, is a very clear shift from what you, we we've all grown accustomed to seeing from David Shaw teams, but they came out as a pass first team. It was one of the first games all year where they were predominantly pass first on first down. They were very successful. They were they had a very good game against Washington State offensively. Obviously, you know, it was a shootout, and and, uh, and Washington State made a few more plays at the end, but certainly the loss can't really depend on Stanford's offense. Um, and so I would say that was that point in the season. And, I mean, that was, that was eight games into the year. So, you know, at that point, I think Stanford, you know, the biggest – excuse me, the biggest goal for the season in terms of the playoff or winning the Pac-12 or even winning the Pac-12 North had pretty much gone out the window. Um, Washington State was game one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, it was game eight. And after losing it, Stanford was sitting at five and three with two conference losses. So the next week, I guess, technically they were still in it before they lost to Washington. But anyway... Um, to get to the rest of your queries, it was, I think, a reaction both to the evidence, which is that the offense was underperforming through those first seven games pretty consistently, 
Um, and then I think also a shift towards the talent, which I think is the, the last part of your question because it gets kind of the long-term implications. And it's a strange, a strange scenario, but I, think it's, I don't think there's any question at this point that Stanford's best and deepest position group is at wide receiver right now. And, you know, after a decade of saying, I think you'd argue very strongly that that would be the offensive line or maybe the defensive line. Um, I think the reality is, is the talent for Stanford on both sides of the ball, to a certain extent defense, but to a great extent on offense, is now on the perimeter. And I don't know that much has or will change this season in that regard. RJ, for the uh, coaching staff, is I think it's David Shaw's eighth season. Um, has there been much turnover as far as some of the coaches go? Um, no, <laughs> there hasn't. He, um, one of his favorite pet phrases is uh, stability equals success. Um, I'm happy to entertain interpretations or evaluations of that theory, but um, uh, as far as the big guys on the staff go, um, no. Um, we got word that Dyron Reynolds um, had a conversation with South Carolina, I believe, during the offseason, but that didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> and it seems like Stanford is expecting all of its key position coaches to be back. Obviously, the big question mark is not with a position coach it's with the kissick family director of sports performance uh <laughs> shannon turley who um in earth terms is the strength and conditioning coach for for the football team he actually oversees he oversees the strength and conditioning coaches for the the whole the rest of the cardinal team actually so he's a very big part of the Stanford coaching staff. Um, as we mentioned before we went on, I tweeted out, I think a couple weeks ago, he's been put on administrative leave and I am not ready to confirm that anything further has happened, but I'm hearing that it is unlikely at this point that he's returning. And in fact, that decision may already have been passed down. Um, again, not confirmed at this point, but anyway, He's not there, and that leaves Stanford in a very interesting position um, at the moment. <clears throat> they currently have no head strength and conditioning coach. They also have no current head football trainer. Um, they had um, they had a guy who was there for, I think, over a decade. He worked with Shannon Turley. He worked very well with Shannon Turley, and he left uh, two seasons ago. They had an interim guy. They had a, they had a replacement guy come in for a year. He left last spring, and Stanford went with um, Emily Montana as the interim trainer for the, the football season that just concluded the 2018 season with the understanding that there was a search and there would be an ongoing search for a new head athletic trainer. Um, and it gets semi-intriguing, I would say, certainly because Stanford had a lot more injury misfortune the past year. Um, I don't think you can lay that on the feet of um, Emily Montana or any specific trainer or anything like that, but there's certainly been instability at those positions. And when you're talking about football, any game where 
you know, injuries and medical and health is such a huge part of everything. It's a weird state that Stanford finds itself in, made even more complicated by the fact that Shannon Turley was, from what I've heard, a big part of the committee trying to hire a head football trainer because whoever that person is, is going to work hand in hand with the strength and conditioning coach. And now that there may not be a strength and conditioning coach, I don't really know what that does in regards to the search. So, you know, it's not, I wouldn't call it a sensational type headline, but I think behind the scenes in some very, very important regards that I think you both can verify with the teams you follow, um, there's there's some uncertainty and some instability there that I think has some people concerned. Yeah, and depending on the the program, the the head strength and conditioning guy specifically for football, um, and I think in this case, beat without the kind of head football person, Charlie was probably taking on some of that role. They can have almost a, a second only to the head coach impact on the program, um, just from instilling culture, like all the weight room stuff that happens in the off season. Um, that's dictated by strength and conditioning. So um, obviously a huge impact from that standpoint. Um, can you share anything about what, if anything, caused the administrative leave? Or is there is that just kind of under wraps at this point? So again, it is not, there isn't a lot of hard details. It's not been confirmed whether or not it was a singular incident or if this was the accumulation of a number of incidents. Um, it's my understanding that there was, <laughs> excuse me, a player, at least one player made a, made a formal complaint. Um, and again, I don't know if it was about a singular thing that had happened, but essentially there was a complaint made, um, and almost instantly, um, Shannon Turley was put on administrative leave and, it was a few days later, I think, that the team was notified, and the the Stanford's on the record as saying that is his status. He's on administrative leave. It's it's ongoing. He's not running strength and conditioning right now. Um, one of the other coaches <laughs> is doing that. Um, but to speak to your comments, David, yeah, I think in Stanford's case, it, it it's very much how you described it. Um, first of all, David Shaw, I want to say, it might have been two years ago went on the record and basically said what you were saying that, you know, from April to August, it's basically Shannon Turley's program. Um, and that I think speaks a lot to what you were saying about the culture and the attitude and, you know, so much of the work that ends up revealing itself in the season. And then, you know, the other, the other thing that I can certainly verify is that Stanford very much recruits to Shannon Turley. He is a huge part of their pitch. He's a huge part of what they sell um, when they talk about their program. Um, and players, I, I, there's no shortage of players who have told me that their best and most meaningful coach relationship was with Shannon Turley. Um, so he's clearly an important person in the program. There is also talk about how when Jim Harbaugh left, he made a strong, strong pull or push to get Shannon Turley to go with him to Michigan and Stanford in a way that Stanford doesn't always do stepped up and, and did what needed to be done to retain him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult to talk about Stanford certainly right now without talking about Shannon Turley, especially, 
you know, with some of the things we were talking about with, with, you know, the way the identity of the team is changing and, and kind of the way the program's changing right now. Um, yeah, we'll keep definitely, if you want to keep up to date, follow RJ or go to the bootleg. He'll uh, have the latest on what's going on with Shannon Turley. Um, mm-hmm. certainly been a big part of that program for, for a decade or so now. Uh, look at the team, RJ. Um, what would you say some of the biggest losses are? We know like Bryce Love is gone, JJ Arcega Whiteside, but what, I mean, you can talk about those guys too, but what, like, who else would you say big losses for this team? Well, I think if, if you're going to look somewhere, I think one, one place you definitely want to look is inside linebacker. Um, Bobby Okarecki has moved on. I think he's out of eligibility, and Sean Barton chose to retire. He had a year where he could have come back. So Stanford does not have a lot of experience at all at inside linebacker. And obviously playing a 3-4 defense, those are two really important spots on the field. Um, and so I think that is, is a place to look at for sure. Um, maybe a little bit less celebrated, but um, Jake Bailey, Stanford's punter, who is, you know, kind of an all-conference, borderline all-American guy, leaves. So they're going to have to find an answer there. And, and you normally wouldn't get too excited or too intrigued by that. But I think David Shaw's, you know, love affair with the punt kind of necessitates <laughs> if you have somebody good back there and you kind of pay attention to who's going to get that job. Um, and then... You know, I think tight end, they lose Caden Smith, but I think there's still a strong group there headed by Colby Parkinson. Um, offensive line, A.T. Hall and Nate Herbig leave. That, that's three, and Jesse Burkett. So three starters gone there. I think there's some optimism that the offensive line is going to be in a little bit better position in terms of depth, but obviously you're going to have to have three starting spots. Um, this year so offensive line inside linebacker I think and then also safety I think it's not clear at this point who's going to step up and play play safety and and can they do it at a level that was frankly lacking for last year yeah looking at um what went on with the offense last year, it was kind of striking, especially the offensive line and speaking to what we were talking about earlier, how much I wonder how much that just the offensive line alone dictated what Stanford ended up doing because the offensive line was actually pretty good at pass pro um, gave up what looks like 24 sacks last year. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the but overall- they couldn't, couldn't run block at all. Yeah, just, no, yeah. I think that that assessment is very much in line with both the eyeball test and the numbers. I mean, that was that was it. And obviously, and again, and you know, it's one of those things where you had Kevin Carberry coming in as a first year um, offensive line coach, replacing Mike Bloomgren, and you know, it it's to his to a certain extent, it certainly kind of is his responsibility or his along with Tavita Pritchard and David Shaw to kind of get that running game going. And they just could never do it. Um, The onus last year in spring and last year in training camp was on pass protection. So it's not like the results to a certain extent didn't show up the way they intended. I mean, they wanted to be better at pass protecting. I think they, they didn't think they were going to have to be the kind of passing team that they were. 
um, because they were returning Bryce Love, and it would have been it would have been silly to come out playing air raid with Bryce Love around, but it was clear pretty early, I would argue as early as the San Diego State game, which was a season opener, that this team wasn't going to be able to run the ball and impose its will on people the way that it had in the past. And so I think a part of it was Stanford couldn't find a reliable scheme. They couldn't find a reliable, you know, two or three anchor plays. I think for years, even, you know, opponents, you know, fans of Stanford's opponents could pick out their kind of that power running play with the pulling guard. I mean, they ran it seemingly interminably to the point that you could pick it out. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think there was no, there was no play like that for Stanford and there hasn't been for a couple of years. And I think that all kind of went into what you saw, which was a team that did have KJ Costello, who had a fantastic year last year as a starting quarterback. Um, I think in every meaningful way, he was basically the second best quarterback in the conference last year. Um, he stepped up his numbers against pressure. He stepped up his numbers against the blitz. You know, his yards per attempt were up. Um, and so, you know, it's just a combination where you just kind of look at, well, number one, this isn't working and this thing is we're just kind of gonna have to go and lean that way um when uh, i have one other follow-up about the offense because um i think it's interesting looking at tavita pritchard um as offensive coordinator what level of responsibility did he actually have over the offense how much of it was david shaw's baby how much of the shift mid-season or soon after mid-season Shaw, was it Pritchard? And is there any pressure or any, I don't know, fan base unrest, you know, from the 10 or so Stanford fans about the job Pritchard has done so far um, compared to, uh, you know, kind of the, the previous offensive staff there? Um, just kind of interested to hear what, what his impact has been and what the assessment is so far of the job he's done. Well, I think the, the front group of questions kind of muddies the last group. Um, I think David Shaw, and this is actually something that's gone back to the Harbaugh era as well. They, unlike I think a lot of other schools, the question of who calls the plays never gets a direct answer. And I know, you know, that was very much a storyline with USC football, but there was never a point, I think, where no one had any idea. Well, and the answer Um, with USC is no one. The answer with USC is no one calls the plays. Well... I think it's Dan Weber, but whatever. Um, it's a magic eight ball or something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, it, it, it's a thing where um, I think David Shaw, the best as we can piece together, David Shaw calls the red zone play. Um, and then it's some kind of a whirling, mystical, you know, formula to Coca-Cola process where there's impact from there's input from Tavita Pritchard in real time, obviously Kevin Carberry and before him, Mike Bloomgren from the run game side. Um, supposedly tight end coach Morgan Turner had his say. So it's just this conglomeration of stuff. So back to your original point, as far as in-game, it's not totally clear um, what Tavita Pritchard's impact is necessarily because we don't really know on a play-by-play basis 
what was coming from him and what wasn't. Um, I think there's certainly <clears throat> some hesitation um, from the fan base. I think that's certainly something that, that goes without question. And I think it applies to both Coach Shaw and Coach Pritchard and, and kind of the whole offensive staff because I think just when you step back and look at the bigger picture, this is an offense that I think you could argue for the last two years has underperformed relative to its talent. And certainly I think you'd make that argument about last season. And so, you know, I guess maybe the safest thing to say would be that the jury is out. Um, but it's it's interesting. I mean, it's hard. Tavita Pritchard has not left the Stanford campus since he was 18 years old. Wow. Um, and he is now the offensive coordinator. And so it's, again, you go back to Coach Shaw and believing that stability equals success, you can kind of see why he would be comfortable with that relationship. But it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's not, we don't know. We're not in the meeting room. So we don't know how much pushback Coach Shaw gets. Um, and, and we don't know necessarily, you know, the process that they use to arrive at their game plans. But um, I think what we do know is that the offense has, number one, underperformed, and number two is in the process of shifting philosophically, um, I think, in part imposed by recruiting issues that they've had and just in part imposed by you know, what has unfolded as they've tried to develop and build this team over the last couple of years. Uh, you mentioned the recruiting. Uh, I wanted to talk about some of the impact newcomers on your, you know, you, what you think they're going to, those guys would be uh, pretty good recruiting class though. 21st in the nation, um, fourth in the PAC 12, and just like a fraction of a point behind USC uh, brought in five offensive linemen trying to address, like you said, losing three of the starters six defensive backs, four wide receivers, and eight four-star players. So it's a, it looks like there's some different makers in this one. Uh, who would you say some of the impact newcomers fans should watch for? And, and maybe it doesn't have to be from the recruiting class, maybe someone from the transfer portal if, if Stanford did that at all. Well, no, I think, again, if you're, if you're excited about some things, certainly the wide receiver group, um, Elijah Higgins was a, I mean – 24 hour to signing day signing commitment. Um, and he's, he's a four star wide receiver out of Texas that they're very excited about. Colby Bowman out of uh, St. John Bosco here in Southern California is the guy that they are excited about. They got Austin Jones, um, who our colleague Brandon Huffman believes is the best running back in the West coast. And um, I think, as excited as you are about those guys just because of their talent, I think they're not necessarily the biggest candidates to contribute right away because it's not necessarily a position of need. At position of need, <clears throat> if you're looking for for intrigue um, from the recruiting class, I think Tristan Sinclair, who is a four-star signee um, out of San Ramon Valley High School up there um, on the East Bay, he actually played safety in his high school career, but has been moved inside to linebacker. Um, and I, you know, I'm not Stanford. It's very, very difficult to get on the field as a first year player at Stanford. Um, but that position group at inside linebacker is in, in a state right now that it's not out of the realm of possibility 
that he gets on the field. I also think uh, Stephen Heron Jr., who's a four-star they got out of Louisville, Kentucky, um, a guy they flipped from Michigan, um, which is something that always gives them no shortage of joy inside that building. Um, I think he's a guy who could find his way out onto the field early. Um, as far as offensive line guys go, Branson Bragg, I think out of that batch, they signed, like you said, they signed five guys. I think they're very high on the guys they signed. But in terms of being ready to throw them out there this year, I think out of that group, it's probably Branson Bragg that you're looking at. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'd say that's, that's where it is. They, 2018 was a very, very bad year for recruiting for Stanford. And I think their ranking suggested, and this year was very much a step back towards the level of recruiting that they've been at for the better part of this decade. Um, how many, how many quarterbacks are going to be on scholarship available this spring? Is the, is the number greater than one? The number is greater than one. And they're so proud of it that they featured it in their release. (laughs) Um, it's literally one of the major bullet points of the, they sent out a little piece on five things to know as spring ball starts. And, um, and yes, um, Stanford will have KJ Costello, who, you know, by the way, he's a redshirt junior now, or he will be in the fall. So basically this is, this will be his fourth academic year on campus. So this is the end of his third academic year. This is his first spring ball as a starting quarterback, <laughs> even though he started the last two seasons. So, you know, it, 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 they're going to have him, Davis Mills, who has had some really bad injury luck in his time at Stanford is available. Good old slinging Jack Richardson, who was the, who was the last man standing last spring and earned himself a scholarship. I think just for his willingness to throw <laughs> what must have been hundreds of passes. Um, he's, He's back. Uh, Jack West was a freshman they recruited last year. He'll be back. Um, so they've got they've got arms. They will not have to throw Tavita into the mix just to finish drills. Um, no need to call. No need to call. No need to call. Uh, David's forever, forever nightmare inspiring Kevin Hogan, which they did last year. Um, they literally brought him back to throw some balls out there. Um, so yeah. Yeah, all the drills will be fully manned, so that's exciting. Wow, <laughs> new, new turning a new page here at Stanford fo- for Stanford football. Um, I Stanford always does everything differently. How has the transfer portal impacted Stanford? Has there been players going into the portal? Has Stanford recruiting players out of it, or is it just like off limits? Stanford doesn't do things like that. Um, it's pretty minimal. I think the biggest name to find his way on the portal going out was Reagan Williams fullback. Um, but, you know, I, again, it's just kind of a weird thing. I think in, in years past, that might have been more of an attention grabbing thing. But with the way Stanford plays now, I don't know how featured the fullback is going to be moving forward. So that really wasn't that big of a deal. Um, there was actual interest with Jalen Phillips believe it or not. Um, And obviously, you know, you saw how that turned out, so it never really got that far. But there was 
there was some mutual interest or at the very least a mutual correspondence there. Um, but I think that's, that's about it. It's, you know, the transfer portal, like you said, first of all, Stanford does things differently for sure. Um, but also, you know, getting in academically as a transfer is actually as difficult or probably even more difficult than it is getting in as a, as a high school graduate. So, you know, that no matter how big the portal gets, I think the available and eligible guys is never going to be a very big number for Stanford. Um, I have like one more question. It's kind of a, a broadish one about the Stanford program and kind of the trajectory at this point. Um, you got last year, they went nine and four a year before nine and five a uh, year before that 10 and three, uh, two years before that eight and five by any reasonable definition of Stanford football. These are great seasons, but of course we do not live in reasonable times. We live in the decade where Stanford has been freakishly dominant, at least through the first half of this decade. Um, do you think this, I don't know, the coming season or the next coming seasons represent a pivot point for Stanford? Do you think it's possible for Stanford to get back to the level of early Shaw and late Harbaugh? Or do you think they're just going to kind of mosey around at this level where they're winning the occasional Rose Bowl every you know four or five years, but maybe not getting back to that level of dominance? Well, I would definitely say that the next season or two is going to be incredibly pivotal. Pivotable. Great word. I Ooh, like it. That was great. Um, yeah, that no, was terrific. And all a sign of that Stanford education when you make up yeah, words. Yeah, they're all cringing. I get it. I mean, that's not even, you don't have to shame Stanford. My elementary school teachers would be not happy with that. <laughs> but anyway, um, no, this is a huge moment in the David Shaw era. I don't think there is any question about it. And, and, and you know, you kind of summed up kind of the, I think the internal conflict that most Stanford fans have lived with over the past decade, which is on the one hand, this is unquestionably the golden age of Stanford football. It's not even close. I mean, it's the program is 120 will be, I think this is season 124. Um, there is nothing anywhere close at any point, leather helmets, single wing, uh, whatever, whatever have you, uh, there's nothing close to this era. It is unquestionably the best it has ever been at Stanford. And at the same time, I think you can look season by season and argue that an awful lot of these years, um, some bigger, some bigger opportunities were left on off the table or left on the table, I should say. Um, I think you can go back as far to the 2014 team, um, which really underperformed when you look relative to the talent that they had on that team. Um, the 2015 team, which was the last Rose Bowl winning team and had a fantastic season, won the Pac-12, won the Rose Bowl. Um, I think you could even look at that season as one that if there was going to be a year that ended in the playoffs, that probably should have been it. And then the last three seasons, I don't think there's any question that this team you know, they haven't fallen off a cliff. They haven't been categorically bad. Like you said, we're talking about nine, 10 win seasons. Um, but there has been a sense, I think, both on the recruiting front and on the field that that opportunities and, and, and kind of the next rung of achievement has eluded them. And so to, I guess to, to answer your, to the final question, can they keep it up or can they get back to, you know, winning the Pac-12 or being at that level and 
kind of at least threatening for the college football playoff? Yeah, they can, because they've, it's been demonstrated at this point that there is a path to consistently recruiting well at Stanford. Um, it's, it's, it's there. It exists. We know now that there are enough elite football players when you, when you recruit nationally, as Stanford does, um, there's enough talent out there that can get into Stanford and contribute. The question becomes now, are these players being developed the way they should be? And where does this team go philosophically? Because I think a lot of people believe Stanford won the way it won um, in the first half of the 2000s. The aughts, that's what these are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right, there. Redeem myself or pivotable. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it, I think that, you know, when you look at it, I think people assumed that was the only way for Stanford to win was to, was to put together, you know, a dominant offensive line, a dominant defensive line, play a physical game and, and win games and beat people in that way. And to kind of be the counterpoint to the, to the, the spread revolution, which is exactly that if you look across football. And so now I think it's, it becomes, all right, are you really going to step into this new philosophy, this new way of playing football, or are you going to try and get back to what you were? And um, it remains to be seen. I don't think there's a definitive answer, certainly on the record at this point, and certainly we haven't seen what it's going to look like. But um, I don't think there's any question. This is this is very anxious times for the fan base because, like you said, the, the success has been um, unprecedented, and and you guys know it, it's it's very tough to unring that bell, even for a program like Stanford. You know, when you put together winning at that level, it's tough to accept anything less. And I just think that I think that there is some anxiety about. Are the glory days over? Are they coming back? Is there something better? Is there something worse? You know, what is kind of going on? I think I just think there's a lot of uncertainty right now um, inside and, and outside the, the football building. Probably the best thing for Stanford is when you like someone picks them to finish like third or fourth in the north. That's when they always do the best. So uh, when, you, when you don't expect Stanford to be good. Uh, they, David Shaw will say, don't, no, 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 don't sleep on us. And then uh, come back and have some kind of huge season. Well, I mean, you nuked them last year. Didn't you pick them to win the North? No, I picked two no, years ago. I, I've i been right. Like two years ago, I did uh, UST, Stanford, USC. Last year, I did Utah and Washington. So I've been, I've been on RJ. Like I'm, I'm I, 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 I probably did. <laughs> I'm usually wrong. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know. Whatever. Let's just go with, I mean, you know, like we've just been talking about, let's go with what works. Let's just go with what Ryan says. Um, <laughs> that's all That's all I really should do, and it's all I never do. Yeah, well, you know, at some point we're going to have to dig into the archives because I've been, uh, I've recently been regaled with stories, with Daily Bruin-era stories of David Wood. Oh, God. Um, I want to read those. That I think that I think the podcast of champions fan base would certainly love to uh, hear about. Oh God. Yeah. From whom? <laughs> yeah. That's my, that was my reaction as well. When I heard the story. Oh my God. That uh, sounds great. Yeah. We need to get some of those on there. That'd be, uh, that'd be, that'd be brilliant. Um, suddenly my body breaks out in cold sweat. <laughs> 
It's our friend, RJ Abadia. Been doing a great job covering uh, Stanford for the bootleg. Follow him on Twitter, RJ underscore Abadia, A-B-E-Y-T-I-A. RJ, thanks so much. It sounds like you're about to die, so we don't want to keep you on too long. But thank you for uh, coming on and sharing some thoughts. Pleasure as always. I'll try to survive at least long enough for the next podcast. That, thanks, <laughs> thanks, RJ. <laughs> All right, so we we knocked out two schools today, two programs, the Bay Area schools, uh, talking with uh, Shannon about Cal and then RJ about Stanford. So good stuff there. Hope you guys enjoyed that. We do have some questions we wanted to get to, but there's a couple stories from you know some of our national writer friends that uh, you know cover the Pac-12, and uh, you know we know John Wilner, and he's been doing a great job with this. Dennis Dodd came out, I think it was, I don't know, sometime last week, and uh, it was a pretty scathing story i guess you could say it, it was more it, i think it's a really good recap like if you weren't sure exactly what was going on he would go into like the john canzano stuff he would talk about uh i mean all, you know any all the things that john has been kind of reporting on just more of a kind of putting it all together and i i think it's it's one of those things that you could like you know hand around you know you print it out and like you know hand it to your friends like hey read this this is crazy or you know, email it to people or whatever, and I I think it was it was a good summary of everything bad that's been going on in the Pacto schools, but you know centered around what this if they sold equity in the conference, what it would mean, how much would it mean for the schools, how that would work, would it really you know is it is the Pacto really evaluated as a multi billion you know five I think it was a five billion dollar company or something like that because basically they were going to give. 10, I think it was 5 billion. Yeah. Cause it was 10% they were going to give away or sell or whatever to, you know, uh, some outside investor that would, um, you know, a 10% stake at $500 million. That would mean that's, you know, uh, the, the, uh, assessment of what this, you know, the conference is worth is $5 billion, but it's, that's more than, I think, I think it was the big 10 and, uh, the sec and stuff like that. So there, I think some of the numbers could be a little fudgy. And then when you, when you break it down, like how much more money, does that mean for each school when you're breaking it all up? And, you know, it, it's kind of similar to what these other schools in the SEC and the Big Ten are already making now. Um, you know, the the media rights deal, like, you're, you know, $31 million in media revenue last fiscal year for Pac-12 schools, but it's $19 million less than like what the Big Ten got or $9 million less than the SEC. Um, and then, you know, if you're in the Big 12, it's closer, but if you're Texas or Oklahoma or some of the bigger schools, they get a bigger take because they c- control their third tier rights, where all the Pac-12 schools don't. So there's all—I mean, all the numbers kind of be a little bit different. Uh, but it, they, I think it's a really good summary. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure this sort of model is going to work. Uh, my guess is it's more of a Larry Scott wants to kind of extend his, uh, you know, five million dollar a year job and like, oh, this is what we're gonna do. In five years, it's going to be awesome. We just have to keep it rolling. I'm going to sell a part of this and stuff. So to me, I don't. It just doesn't seem like it's going to work to me. I don't. I don't know what you thought, Dave. Yeah, I think it's super dumb. Um, <laughs> I think it's. I mean, it's it's short term thinking from him. Um, I, I think somebody had the theory that it's a way for him to get another um, uh, fee for negotiating a big deal, which makes sense um, for him to get some more money. Um, but no, I mean, as a pure business play it sounds really dumb um i think if you're going to give it if you're going to give a stake to private equity whatever form that takes they're going to want to say in how you're doing your business which for our purposes 
though that might align, you know, we want to watch more football and basketball because that's what we're interested in. And that's probably what they're going to decide is most profitable. I would think in the short term anyway. Um, but for the president, universities, uh, they had a reason for wanting all the stupid Olympic sports on these channels. So those aren't a profit play and any private investment group is going to want, you know, to emphasize the profitable aspects and ditch the things that are unprofitable. Yeah. And I can't see a situation where they're taking 10% and not actually taking a little bit of the say as well. I don't think that's a good investment for anybody. Um, least of all something, you know, something akin to what Dodd is referring to as sharks. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's dumb from a lot of respects. I think it would be short-term thinking from Larry Scott and the PAC 12 to, take in the money. I think for our purposes in the short term, it would maybe work out better for like yours and mine because, you know, they'd probably prioritize football content and basketball content. But the thing with, and maybe this is just my limited outside understanding of private equity because I am not um, extremely wealthy. But uh, the thing is you, you constantly got to be growing and making more profitable. And I don't, I don't know if that's the business model to approach here. Like, I don't know if you're going to, I mean, this is a TV network and that certainly there's some left table by what they're currently doing, but I don't know if this is like an infinitely growing business here, especially with the way cable is changing the nature of the entire industry of, of cable sports. So, um, I would, I would be very leery of any private equity investment. Yeah. And it's not like you just get the money. Like if you're an investor, you want, returns on your investment you know? exactly and, yeah and do we know and growing returns an increasing rate of return over time which yeah. i just don't know if that's i don't know if 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 you're thinking about the future of the league in the 10 to 20 year timeline if that's a really good idea to to marry yourself to somebody who's gonna want more and more and more money from the investment over time. And then who, who would the investor be would it be someone that's like a broadcast like a media partner that you could actually work with or is it just a someone that's just got a lot of money that would some other industry um, you'd obviously want someone that could kind of help you uh, you know in what you're doing right now but my, my gut feeling Dave is more like yeah I think in the long term it, maybe it's cool to own your own stuff uh, you know you, you own all of the, your own rights but you missed out on this 12-year window where you may never see media contracts like this again um, I think live sporting events are always going to be important the Pac-12 does more than anybody, but there's a whole bunch of them that that cost a lot of money to produce, and nobody watches. It just doesn't make any sense. You, I, I feel like if you signed up with ESPN or Fox and partnered with them, all the the Big Twelve, I mean the Big Ten, the SEC, uh, you, they're making tons of money. I'm not sure they're gonna be forever, uh, but I, you've missed out on this huge window. Even if you could like somehow beat that at the end of this media window when you can renegotiate your contract, I think you missed out on so much revenue. I don't, you'd have to like quadruple what they were doing or something just to kind of keep it close. It seems kind of crazy to me and selling off part of it as you know, private equity doesn't make much sense either. So I, yeah, I feel like they're trying to do things a different way. It's just not, it's just not working and they, they need to move on from Larry Scott at this point. Yeah, I think they're just they're trying to overcorrect a mistake that I just don't think you can fully correct at this point. They probably should have gone with a media partner. They didn't. And now I think they just have to be a little bit patient, figure out 
what they're going to do with the next rights deal and make sure there's somebody else negotiating it. Yeah. Um, the other big thing from John Wilner came out on Friday, I believe. I think it was February 22nd, if I'm not mistaken. So um, Pac-12 hires independent firm, an outside agency, to conduct an independent review of its football officiating. And then John Wilner sent out a, a newsletter, I believe it was today, saying that uh, that actually could encompass more than just football. It could you know, ba- include basketball as well. And I, you know, we've known this has been a problem forever. Uh, and I think doing internal reviews, all that stuff just doesn't seem to work. It, even if you bring in good people, it just seems like they get bogged down in whatever this Pac-12 machine is and you can't fix it. Having an outside agency, maybe that's going to help. But any thoughts on on that move, Dave? Oh, I think it's a great idea. I think it's something they should have done, not just whatever, a year or two ago, whenever the stuff started coming out, but probably like 15 years ago uh, before Larry Scott was even at the Pac-12 because um, the officiating has been horrible forever. Uh, but I think this should be a constant for an organization like that, which is prone. I mean, and I think all of these things are, um, but you're prone to making insular decisions that don't have a lot of outside input. If you've got a lot of the same personnel in place for a long period of time, and it just helps to have kind of an audit of your decision-making process, let alone the actual processes of, um, you know, doing the officiating and doing all of the different aspects of the job, but they should be auditing all of that stuff constantly. So I think it's a great idea. Um, I hope they're doing it from the absolute bottom of it all the way to the top. Um, you know, reviewing the entire process from the refs making the calls to what's going on in the command center to what role Larry Scott has in it, what role he should have in it, what the structure should look like back at the main PAC 12 office. Um, but I think it's very good. Hopefully, it's a signal that they're willing to do this in other areas as well, um, because I think they could use some expert help in a lot of areas. Because I just, I have not been impressed with the expertise of the Pac-12 in much of anything. I think their network programs do a pretty good job. I, I like the way they've hired whoever's hired their talent for um, TV. I think has done a really nice job, whoever that is. Um, but otherwise, I haven't been impressed by much with the Pac-12. Uh, me neither. And the good part about all this is this is coming from uh, the athletic director. So uh, John Wilner talked to uh, Ray Anderson from Arizona State, and he said um, that this was a unanimously supported uh, by the, all the athletic directors in the Pac-12 to use an independent agency to conduct an, uh, the review. And he actually, so Ray Anderson, when he was with the NFL, he hired this company, what is it, Sibson or something like that? Yep. Um to uh, to do that during his first year on the job. So he's got some experience with this. I think he's the right guy to kind of lead this charge. And it's great that you have unanimous support from the the, the athletic director. So it seems like they realize this is a problem. I, I mean, you could have figured this out 20 years ago, but it's it's been a problem ever since. And maybe something now will get done about it. Yeah, and it's not. It doesn't seem like it's just purely a PR thing. It does seem like there might be something substantive from it, and so that's that's all great. Yeah, this isn't like the other thing where like, yeah, we need to change our image. It's not not fix the problems. This is more. This isn't change the image of the officiating. This is fix the problems of officiating. So that that's a good thing. So they're gonna. I think it's starting this week, and they wanted to have something you know finished by the start of camp. So uh, we'll we'll keep you up to date on what we find out, which will probably be from. What John Wilner finds. <laughs> we'll tell you what John. We well, do a lot of our. We do a lot of independent research here yeah. with the podcast. Well, we'll get John on. Yeah, John loves coming on the show, so we'll we'll talk to him about it too. 
Look, you want to ask us about um, insurgencies in Southeast Asia in the 1950s and 60s? We're your guys. You want to <laughs> you want to ask us about the, our area of expertise purportedly on this podcast? <laughs> eh, not so much. Not so much. That did get a lot of play on Twitter and stuff. People liked that. Uh, we got <laughs> the insurgency talk was pretty good. <laughs> I'm always down. Always down. Um, all right, we, we're into questions now. Yes. Yes, I think there's a text. I think there's one text we got to get to. Is that right? Yep, yep. We don't have a name because we never do. Regarding college guys you love to talk to, I always imagined that Jerry, quote, the hair, Neuheisel, would be a funny dude. Also think that Alawali Bedeku would be interesting as hell. The amount of history that man has lived. Uh, that's because Bedeku is uh, super old looking. Um, <laughs> so Jerry, Jerry was always a funny guy. Um, he does, as you might imagine, a dead on impersonation father um which is pretty great um but yeah he's always a good guy um i'm hearing that he's actually become kind of a really good um ga level recruiter at ucla so if you're looking for an assistant of the future i'm sure new will be one and i'm you know i would i would probably bet money on him being a head coach at some point as well um Bedeku, I remember talking to him um as a recruit and he was uh you know always pretty nice guy to talk to i wouldn't call him a kid a uh, nice guy to yeah. talk to um did you i mean did you share any tips with him as you know a couple of guys in your mid-40s <laughs> he is like, a, he is a really you, know, how you deal with you know the, the aches and pains that start a little bit earlier in the day you know getting out of bed <laughs> in the morning you know that's sort of stuff yeah he, uh, he could give me some workout tips he's he's the first guy off the bus sort of dude like you look at him and like okay that's that's like a chiseled man um, yeah, he does look a little bit older. Very nice guy. He's in the transfer portal now, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, we'll find, I don't think he's declared where he's going to end up, but, um, sort of was like a raw football guy, played a lot of soccer and stuff, uh, I believe. Uh, but very super nice guy. Like you, you look at him and you'd be like afraid just like he's so big, but, um, like one of the nicest dudes around. So we'll, we'll find out where he's going to end up. Um, we got an email from Ice Cold 1906 from the Bro Board, Dave. So one of your buddies. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the stories you are about to hear are true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Can you each tell us the wildest official visit story that you've heard about? I give you explicit permission to discuss basketball just this once if the stories are more salacious. So I've got one. I don't remember all the details of it, but it was super wild. Um, I'm not going to use the name just because, you know, these are secondhand stories and I don't want to get hit with like a libel charge or something. There was a tight end uh, who I believe Rick Neuheisel was recruiting at UCLA, who was known to party um, hard constantly. Um, and on his official visit, uh, there was a cocaine binge. There was a whole bunch of drinking. There was showing up late for several events on the official visit. There was showing up drunk to the Rose Bowl, um, just being completely it's the entire time. I think there were like multiple girls in the dorm room um, where he was staying, like just full on, like the craziest behavior. And this is, I guess it, it, it doesn't sound that, that out there if you've got like a really crazy idea of what these kids actually do on official visits but if you actually know what they do it's insane because these things are like managed visits oftentimes with their parents i think his parents were on the trip too it was wild 
Um, I don't know if you know who I'm talking about, but he ended up committed to another Pac-12 school. Um, I don't know what ended up happening with him, but that that was probably one of the crazier ones I've heard. Interesting. No, you have to put it in our little share doc. Tell me who that one was. Um, I don't have any like, there's a, I guess you can give a couple. They're like general stories. I haven't heard too much crazy stuff going on uh, lately, but back in the Pete Carroll era, there was a, a tight end who was, um, he was good. He was, he was a really good player, but he was connected through the, the, the LA um, like club scene and would do all kinds of bring these guys. He was the dude, like he would be the man hooking up the clubs and you don't think about it, but these are like 17, 18 year old kids to get them into like the biggest Hollywood <laughs> clubs and stuff partying. Like I, I haven't heard much of that going on lately, but that definitely was something that was kind of going on uh, then. Um, and there was one, this isn't an official visit, but when I think just when I was leaving rivals and joining scout, there was the, the rivals does their big camp. And I forget where we were. It was like Atlanta or something. And there was like this high profile, I think it was like a linebacker from, uh, like there was going to go to Auburn, Alabama or something like that. And like, I mean, it was like full on, like sort of like a, like, like a hookers and blows sort of situation. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like, it was some crazy thing where they had to kick him out of this camp. It was like a high school camp. Um, so that was, that was kind of nutty too, but nothing like real specific, like, Oh, this official visit or anything like that. Yeah. And I know like on the positive side, I know there've been some like crazy parties at UCLA, like just where they've had, like, I remember when uh, Justin Combs is on the team, um, one of the features, uh, for a couple of those recruiting official visit weekends was like a party at P Diddy's mansion or whatever, <laughs> I don't know, Diddy's mansion, whatever. Um, but, uh, that, that used to happen pretty regularly. Um, but yeah, no, the, 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 I, it's not too often that they're completely wild. Most of the times the kids are taking it at least somewhat seriously and aren't behaving like absolute lunatics. So when they do, it's noteworthy yeah i don't i don't know as much like you can see stuff on twitter and stuff now from the players and it like i know for usc they go to like before they you know they go to manhattan beach on sunday morning for like a brunch thing and like all the coaches and the recruits and the parents are all there and then they go right from there to the airport because it's pretty close to the airport there's usually some kind of like fancy dinner i think downtown on on Saturday, it, it, I don't know if they do it the same way as they used to. It, it, uh, my gut is they don't, but maybe there's things are going on. You know, maybe there's more like house parties or things that they could go to potentially. But um, I, back, back in the day, it used to be crazy. I think they've made restrictions too on how far you could drive from campus too. So now you have advantages being in LA because you could go to like cool places. You can go to like Hollywood or something where, you know, if you're in Pullman, like, you know, there's some probably some cool stuff, but not, you know, you're not going to be going to uh, like the Chinese theater or something and seeing, you know, stars and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. You ready for the next one? Sure. Uh, this is a from Sean from Ohio. So international question here. Um, bias <laughs> question. Uh, guys, I was listening to another national podcast who tried to sell me on the fact that ESPN doesn't have an agenda and roots for all conferences equally. I agree they do show games from every conference, but isn't it naive to think that because there is no Pac-12 network associated with their company and the SEC does that they would promote their own brand before others they don't share the same relationship with? Am I missing something here or does this sound like poo to you both? Um, I would say there's not like a directive. Like they don't send out a memo to all the different personalities. 
Um, I think you just have a lot of people that are more SEC centric that are hired, like that they know that better. Like you have some Brock Hewards out there, and he's not gonna, you know, he's gonna talk about you know whatever whatever game he's calling, but he knows about the West Coast. I think they have a lot of people that aren't that knowledgeable about the West Coast. And I think when the recruiting stuff comes in there, I think there's more bias in that where they would rank guys higher that would commit to the, the all-star game they were associated with as opposed to other all-star games. And, you know, it does seem to be more SEC-centric for uh, for the, re- the recruiting side of things. But I don't think there's, like, some directive. It's more about the individuals. And they just happen to have – I think they have a lot of individuals that are – based in those areas and that's what they they know the most um yes uh i i agree with that um i do think there is um but i do think that does that 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 leads to bias um and it might not be intentional bias but it, it's bias nonetheless sure. um okay <clears throat> so it, yeah i mean it, you have all these people you're hiring from that area i mean it's the, the there's also like just the pure um geography of the reality which is that what four-fifths of all of the power five programs come from you know east of the rockies so you're it's not even necessarily bias i mean if they're representing it at about a 20 percent level then that's about right for the pac-12 um so yeah i could go either way on it i don't think it's i think there are some some talking heads who probably do have a bias in but some talking heads who have a biased opinion um, on on the West Coast about the quality of Pac-12 football, which hasn't been great of late. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think I, it kind of goes back and forth. And there's probably executives there that are like, you know, they would they want to focus more on the SEC because they have a huge stake in the network and things like that. I'm, I'm sure stuff like that happens. But I think what you see on a day day by day basis is more of the the individual personalities there. But um, yeah, I think there there's some, like, people ask me like. Well, ESPN ranks this guy as blah blah blah. You're like, yeah, don't. I mean, they don't have like rivals and and twenty four seven or you know when it used to be scout. Like, you have people in every region that are evaluating guys. And like our our Greg Biggins used to work for ESPN for a while. He would send in like evaluations, and they would be like, nope, your job is to like write about these guys. Like they they would do all their evaluations from Bristol, Connecticut, or wherever it was. So. Yeah, I, I don't trust their rankings because it's not really they don't have like boots on the ground looking at these guys in person. It's more just kind of what they it's it's more of a TV show that's doing rankings as opposed to just ranking guys across the country. Yeah, we have a, a question from Matthew from Mountain View podcast ideas for 2019. Hello, Ryan and Dave. I have a few ideas I wanted to suggest for the podcast this year in order to help fill dead time. How about inviting a listener to join you for an episode? You could definitely charge for the privilege, though since you already make enough money from sponsors to retire, it would be prob- it would probably make sense to donate the appearance fee to an appropriate mutually accepted charity. Sorry, Dave, but Ryan is definitely vetoing giving money to Communist Party USA. And sorry, Ryan, you need to suggest someone other than the John Birch Society. I don't even know what that is. Uh, perhaps the Jake Browning Eight Years of Eligibility Fund. I'll start the bidding for real cha- for a real charity at one hundred dollars. What is John Birch? Do you know what that is? Is it some That's, um It's an anti-communist, oh. um, very very radical right and far right. Um, so you'd you'd probably fit right in. Nice. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
When I think Ryan, I think far, far, far right. <laughs> Just super far right. Um, but yeah, no, that, and there's a whole thing called Bircherism, and it's basically the like far right conspiracy theories. Oh. That goes into all that stuff, so it's kind of cool. Um, the Communist Party of the U- of USA, I don't even think exists anymore. Um, I think that was part of the whole... Um, let's see. Do you still have your card? card? You were a card carrying member, right? I, I mean, if only, uh, so they are still in existence, but I know the DSA is more the democratic socialists of, uh, of America is actually the more, um, popular one these days. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So if you need to know your, 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 your leftist organizations, um, there you go. So I would, I mean, I love the charity idea. I know Dave's not a real charitable person, but I like to do things like that. So um, I think that's I just, cool. I just understand my own failures in, in vision and understand that perhaps <laughs> a, an overarching organization that we all agreed on, say, called a government, for example, um, maybe does a better job of doling out that money than my own individual biases. <laughs> nice. That's just my thought on it, though. <laughs> Ryan might have a different thought. Yes. Um, but we, I would like, I think, do you think it's a good idea to have like some, some guests come on? I think this sounds horrendous. Let's do it. You want, oh, you mean it's ferocious. Uh, so I just, so for, we do a, uh, a live show for, um, for the the USC stuff. It's called tunnel vision. We do a show and we just started to take live calls. So I've set that up. We could potentially do a podcast show where we have people call in and, uh, you know, and we could like take some calls. Like, so let people know, Hey, you got to call in during this time and we could do that. And, and, you know, maybe we have them give some money to charity or something like that. You would only have, I think I I can't speak for you, but on my end, you would only have friends of mine calling in with pranks. (laughs) That's, that's what it would be for like one show. And then they do it the next week and there'd be nobody. Nice. But it would be like just nothing but dick jokes for like an entire hour. We we were worried about that. So the way I have it set up right now. I thought about calling you with a dick joke when you guys did. <laughs> so the way we have it set up, and we're, we're actually changing it, but we had it. So uh, Chris Trevino was in the other room and we had it like like wired into the, the mixing board for the whole show. You could only have one person call at a time. They were basically calling in the Google voice line. So instead of going to voicemail, we would take the call on another computer and then like patch it into the show. It's pretty like hokey, hokey pokey, whatever, but we, it would work, but only one person could call at a time. And if you called and someone was already on the line, it would just go to voicemail and stuff. But nobody, we did, I think two or three shows of live calls and nobody has like done anything crazy yet. So it's been, so we've been lucky. I'll knock on wood or whatever, but, um, or, Did or you maybe, hear that out there, everyone? <laughs> Ryan is challenging you. Yes. Well, I, but I, we could do like, and it doesn't have to be like long segments. We could do like shorter calls or we could do like, hey, this week we're going to have Hitler Day on or, or somebody like that. All right. Know. Well, whatever. If you want to rub elbows with the hoi polloi, who am I to judge? Let's right. do it. I know you. this is probably a horrible idea that you would not like, but um, no. Okay. That, that's interesting. And, you know, we could say you have to give some money to charity. For that, we would certainly not charge you to come on the show. Um, number two, he says, for the Pac-12 suicide pool, I wanted to suggest an alternate format using the old bootleg rules. You until st- he wrote that, until he wrote that, I didn't remember that we did a suicide poll last year. We did. It was only, I think we could do it with the listeners too, um, but we did it. We tried to do it with all of the Pac-12 publishers yeah. and like 
eight of them responded, and that, that was about it. But you can still pick one result per week, one miss, and you're out. So that doesn't change. You don't have to pick a team to win. For example, last year you could have picked Oregon State to lose to Ohio State in week one, and you're allowed to pick each result twice during the season. So, uh, for example, two UCLA wins and two UCLA losses. Uh, so the catch is if you pick a conference game, then both the win and the loss count towards your limits. Uh, so if you pick Stanford to beat UCLA for the 12th consecutive time, it will count as a both Stanford win and a UCLA loss. This prevents you from simply picking everyone to beat Oregon State. It uh, is difficult to make it to the end of the season, but not impossible if you plan ahead. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> I know this sounds complicated, so why not make it more complicated and let listeners play as well? Yes, this will require some uh, effort to track, which automatically eliminates the two of you. However, if you are willing to do this, I hereby volunteer to do the tracking using drumroll, please, Dave, Excel. Yes, Excel is much more useful in adulthood than calculus, especially if you work in finance like me. What do you say, Matthew, in Mountain View? Okay, Matthew, I say I'm I'm in pretty much island, uh, but you have to remind us. You have to yeah. put put a note. You're I think you're a Stanford guy. You're from I said Stanford. <laughs> Did you hear that? Yes. <laughs> Occasionally, like I say, most words correctly, right? Like most no, of them. You're okay, you're, I'm nailing them about like a 92 percent clip. And then I say Stanford, Stanford. Um, he's from Stanford. He should be able to figure this out. He probably pronounces it Stanford. Yeah, it's hard to talk for like a couple hours straight and and be coherent. And it's hard to talk. I mean, <laughs> honestly, if we're talking about that, I mean, it takes you a full like year of life before you're even saying a word. Think about that. Yeah. And we're up here. We're saying so many words. <laughs> It like in an order that's supposed to matter. <laughs> I know we're conveying meaning. Like my two-year-old, she doesn't convey any meaning. Like it's just it's it's astounding. You know what? We're marvels. That's what I think of us. We are marvelous people. We are marvels. We're Captain Marvels. But those All are right. good ideas. Remind us though ahead of time, and it'd be great. Yeah, we could uh, have everybody. I don't know if we want to make it super complicated. We have to keep track of like. I mean, I kind of just like the straight up pick someone to win, but we could do the more complicated one. I don't, I don't know. What do you think, Dave? Um, I could go either way. I'm fine picking it twice because that keeps people in longer. Um, it does seem like it's very complicated, and it would take a lot to explain the rules to people, yeah. which is more my issue. Like all fair, I'm gonna have to explain the rules to you, and that's gonna be a challenge. Yes, and then we'll have to move on to other people, strangers <laughs> who I don't, I don't necessarily speak their language, and then it's just we're in a complica- complicated situation with no uh, good exit. So I would say we keep it simple, but invite listeners to participate. I think that's a good uh, split of the difference, a good Solomon bisecting the child. I think we've got a good good result there. <laughs> okay. Cut that kid in half. All right. You want to go next? (laughs) All right. Off-season questions from Scott. Hey, Ryan and Dave, do you think that Leach Wazoo hit their ceiling last year? Uh, Leach obviously has done a great job at Wazoo. Do you think he will ever take that next step on the recruiting front and start bringing in four-star guys in mass and even land a rare five-star? He's landed a handful at quarterback. But I would assume his results have to have higher-end prospects, at least considering Wazoo. During your time covering USC, fuck la- Okay, so th- that's the first set of questions. So let's tackle the wazoo first. Yes. Uh, okay, so do we think they hit their ceiling this year? 
you know, I think because he's such a good coach that you can do even, I mean, at least make 11 games is great, but I think you could see them make the, uh, you know, New Year, a New Year six bowl, uh, potentially win the Pac 12. Um, we actually got to speak with Graham Harrell for the first time this morning, and he had a lot of things to say about Mike Leach where, where you see what he does, where everything, it's like you're not trying to to master too many things. You're you're really mastering a small group of, you know, something that's going to make you successful. You you don't do the stuff that isn't. So I think a lot of coaches kind of fall in that trap. So I feel like he's got a system that'll work even if you don't have five star guys all over the place. And if things fall the right way, uh, you know they got to play better against Washington. But I, I think I don't think he's hit the ceiling. I think it, it's close, but I think they can go. He can go a little bit further and. You get a, a stud quarterback in there again with a couple good wide receivers, and uh, you know they can do a lot of good things. Banging pretty hard into their ceiling, um, but I don't think it's impossible for them to um, maintain at or near their ceiling because they do have a very good coach. Um, but look, they they haven't been super competitive either with Washington. It's not even just that they're losing every time; it's that Washington has them figured out. He's got that off. Uh, no matter who's who's handling defensive play calling for Washington, they've got that that offense figured out. Um, so it's uh, I, I, I I'm I'm in kind of wait and see on that after we bloodied our noses again picking Washington State last year um, in that game. And until they can do that, it's just hard to say that they're going to ever do better than what they did last year. And now that doesn't mean in a in an off year. I mean, you go ten and two. Sometimes that's going to mean you're, you know, third place in the league overall or fourth place in the overall league overall. But some years that might mean you won the whole thing. And it just kind of depends on what other teams are doing. I think their ceiling independent of anybody else. Yeah, it's kind of a two loss regular season. That seems about right. Um, I mean, it's hard for me to see a Washington State team that schedules decently in conference, um, which they didn't do last year. They played Eastern Washington, San Jose State and Wyoming. Um that is ever going to go undefeated. And it's just, I don't know. It's hard for me to see nine and zero in the league either. I mean, yeah. I just don't think they get the talent and without what you're talking about, Scott, which is a steady diet of four stars, throw away the five-star idea, just a steady diet of four stars, you know, maybe get five or six guys every year without doing that. I just don't know if you can do it week in and week out. I think Leach can get his team up to win some games for sure. But when you're facing off of it against a team that's just as well coached, that has more talent and has your scheme figured out in Washington and, you know, maybe with coaching upgrades elsewhere, maybe that's going to change it. Say USC as well. Maybe next year, not this year, because they still have Clay Helton. But if, if you're looking around and you see the teams that have a similar amount of talent, but also a pretty good coach, it's just or have a greater amount of talent, but also a pretty good coach. Um, it's just. It's hard for them. It's hard for me to see them being so much better than everyone else from a coaching and schematic perspective that they're suddenly going nine and zero. So seven and two in conference. Two, yeah, that that strikes me as ceiling, but that doesn't mean you can't win the conference and even in a very strange year make a playoff. Yeah. It has to things have to align, but it could happen. Um, but yeah, more than that, I think is. I mean, it's possible, but I don't think you can call that a ceiling just because something is pie in the sky hopeful. Gotcha. Makes sense. And then um, during your time covering you dollar sign C and Fuckla, so he's having some keyboard issues, it looks <laughs> like. Uh, who is the best player you've seen? 
Who is the most underrated? Who was the biggest bust? Uh, I'd go best would probably be Reggie Bush. Like he was just ridiculous. Um, underrated. I'm having a hard time. I don't really, you know, like, I, I mean, I don't know. Like most of the guys were, you know, you kind of knew who they were. Um, biggest bust would probably be like a Whitney Lewis. Like he was like, he was actually ranked in the recruitings ahead of Reggie Bush. St. Bonaventure's had a lot of busts out of there. Uh, him, like Ricky Town, was a pretty big bust. Um, I'd probably go with those guys. Uh, best player I've seen. Um, um, there's a couple, probably a handful of guys who are all somewhat equal. Maurice Drew was great. Uh, Mercedes Lewis was great. Um, Brett Hundley was really good. Um, what he did against USC every year was actually, I think, kind of raises him in estimation. Um I mean, uh, single years from a lot of guys, Jonathan Franklin, Paul Perkins. I don't know. It's tough to pick. I don't think there's that standout like Reggie Bush, which is basically transformative for an entire generation of recruits out there who basically were citing him for the next 10 years pretty consistently as their favorite player growing up. So, um, but I think UC always had a handful of guys who are pretty damn good. Um, who's the most underrated? Um, you know, it's interesting. I think Miles Jack, and I'll, it's not because he didn't get enough pub, but I thought he got overrated for the wrong reasons and underrated um, for. Uh, so he got overrated because I think people were like really bought into the hype after his freshman year where they saw him going both ways and they're like, oh my God, who is this guy? And that was all really cool. But what was. Um, kind of more important about Jack was the way he changed the defense. Um, he was actually who at like 6'1", 230, 235, was simultaneously UCLA's best inside, outside linebacker, their best nickel corner, and their best safety. Um, could have played literally anywhere in that group. And if you'd wanted to stick him at rush end, probably could have figured that one out too. Um, but the way he was able to change the defense such that UCLA was able to play base personnel, but do kind of wildly different things within that personnel, I think made that um, that 2013 defense, but also the 2014 defense a lot better than they otherwise would have been. Um, so that's kind of just what's top of mind. I'm sure there's another answer that's probably better. But um, And then who was the biggest bust? Um, so this is a tough one for me, Ryan, and I'm sure it's the same for you, where oftentimes you'll have an idea that a guy might be a bust when you're watching him as a recruit, but he's higher, highly rated, you know, either residually from a previous even higher ranking like Ricky Town or, you know, whatever. Um, but for me, I mean, it's probably Priest Willis. He was a five star, um, didn't end up doing anything at UCLA, played a little bit of corner, um, but just couldn't really move that well to play corner. We should have been a safety and even then probably wouldn't have been a great one. Um, yeah, he's probably the one that sticks out. Yeah, uh, I think Markeith Ambles was a guy that he was a five-star too that came in and just didn't do much. There's a lot of guys like if it's a five-star guy that just doesn't really play. I mean, you could go with uh, Wally Batiku too, you know, like he's, he was a five-star and, and didn't really do anything. Um, I, underrated, I might go with like a Ryan Khalil who had, a, I think he just retired, a long career center for Cam Newton and the Carolina Panthers. Um you know, centers don't usually get a lot of accolades and he was just an absolute stud when he was at SC and played in the NFL for a long time. So he's, he's probably a good bet for that. Yeah. Um, and then Dave with Kelly really crushing it on the recruiting front after a rough first season, how long do you give chip before he enters gloveless new Heisel territory? 
Um, God, I don't know. Cause that's like, so are you saying gloveless new territory as in the team performing at what Rick Neuheisel is describing the reason for it as being gloveless or the point at which he is no longer the UCLA head coach and he's blaming it on his players being gloveless. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know what we're going for here. So I'm, I'm having a hard time giving an answer. Uh, but I will say it's, it's can't keep recruiting like that. So we'll see, we'll see what ends up happening here, but um, they've certainly changed strategy a little bit heading into this cycle. We'll see if it changes a lot of it. And uh, they start, you know, once we're in June and July, uh, guys are actually saying, Hey, UCLA is still recruiting me pretty hard. Yeah. If that's happening, then uh, I think they will have shifted course. And then he says, love the podcast. Thanks for the great content. Yeah. Well, thanks for the email. Uh, we got one from our buddy, John and Brea. Hi, Ryan and Dave. This is about Oregon. It was interesting listening to Eric Scopel during your spring report on Oregon. I don't buy the Jim Levitt story. Of course, they waited until after the recruiting class was signed to make a move. Sure. He might not have been the lead recruiter for anyone, but changing a coordinator and a good one before signing day certainly would have raised questions about stability, direction, etc., when asked about receivers, Eric did not mention Brian Addison. He was suspended at the beginning of 2018, and there was talk of him uh, redshirting. Is he still on the Ducks roster? Thanks, John and Brea. I don't. He transferred, right? He was the Sarah kid. I, do you remember him? I do. So he was committed to UCLA, and then there was an issue. I'm, again, somebody's asking me to remember something from an entire year ago. Golly. Um, but he was he was committed to UCLA and then he had to make a quick decision elsewhere and ended up settling on Oregon. But he was there by the time I think camp broke in fall. Yeah. Um, he still his Twitter profile still shows him at Oregon. Uh yeah, he committed working. he committed to Oregon in July of last year. So yeah. he was there by the time camp broke. And he's like tweet like retweeted or workout stuff from um the beginning. He actually retweeted Eric Scopel. Uh let's see. So he said of twenty one uh, scholarship freshmen on last year's team, thirteen were able to take advantage of the new redshirt rule. Today we be, uh we begin familiarizing folks with those players, starting with wide receiver Brian Addison. So he did a red shirt. Re so Eric did a red shirt review of him about a week ago. So he apparently is still there. Yeah. All right. We got our something from our man Hitler day. All you right. Ready? This is the last El, one. I think. Yeah. El Camino. Real. Whatever. Uh, last week, you mentioned that both USC and UCLA didn't go after the top recruit in the Pac-12 weak side defensive end cave on Thibodeau. From just up the 101 at Oaks Christian, this is the second time you've noticed noted this peculiarity. And since I know you boys to be peerless professionals above any, quote, we didn't want him anyway, quote, chauvinism, I wonder if this isn't schematic. I know Jerry Azanaro has run a 3-4 with a drop end his, his whole career. And although it's been a while since I did film study on Clancy Pendergast, I recall his system being a 3-4-5-2 hybrid fairly similar to Jim Levitt's. Both would have a hard time utilizing a weak side defensive end with his fist in the dirt, wouldn't they? And if that's so, what do you make of the theory that's been floating around that the process of Thibodeau's and the rest of the uh, Oregon defensive line recruitment also implies the Ducks have been planning on ditching Levitt and moving to an even front for over a year? Have you heard anything like that in your circles? So I have one answer on this, which is going to sound vaguely like sour grapes, but I'll explain why it isn't. Okay. If you 
can I do that one first? Sure. So what I heard very early on, and I even brought it up on this show, I think like a year ago, one of the reasons that he wasn't necessarily being recruited very hard was um, from UCLA's end, or I, I think maybe even includes USC. I can't speak for them uh, at all, but um, there was some talk of not being super impressed with his work ethic, um, which is the sort of thing where I think that's a double-edged sword is that when you're close, physically close and, and proximate to a recruit, um, you can hear information like that early on that might turn you off to a recruit that proves not to be true because these are oftentimes 16, 17 year old kids. When you first hear about them, one thing about that age group is that they change a lot. Um, or one, you know, bad couple of weeks maybe, uh, turns into, Oh, well suddenly they're, they're actually doing fine and completely great. You know, I, I heard that about a couple of guys who UCLA didn't end up recruiting last cycle very hard until too late that they made an initial assessment that turned out not to actually carry, uh, water by the end of their senior years. Um, that's why it's tough to make kind of character evaluations based on what a kid is at 16 or 17. So that's one th- heard. Of, um, but I, I think some of it is probably exactly what you're saying. Hifliday, probably not a great fit, but I think with a player with his talent and also again, a young kid who might grow into something else. Um, I don't think that's a, a reason to not recruit him. That's a reason to not pick up a free agent in the NFL. It's a reason to not draft a guy, maybe. But at this level, because bodies can change still so much, especially on the line, I don't think that's something that would preclude you from recruiting a guy who's that local to you. I think you would just take the talent and then try to fit him in. Um, the fact that both schools didn't really recruit him much at all, I think, is is that's more than just um, they didn't fit the scheme. I think it was both. I think it was maybe them each having a reason not to, um, but that doesn't mean that could also mean they also heard early signs that he wasn't very interested in staying local. Yeah. I think there has to be uh, several factors in something like this. And a lot of it is, I mean, there's a lot of dudes that Chip Kelly didn't recruit, right? It, you, you can't blame a lot of dudes, a lot of dudes. <laughs> like, the list of people that Chip <laughs> Kelly didn't recruit is endless. <laughs> Um, and you know, USC's had their, their recruiting issues this past cycle too. So I think decisions were made and there were, you know, there was probably several reasons to make the decisions. doesn't mean they were the right decisions. Uh, when you get that kind of talent, now when you would go to an event, like uh, seeing him at the opening and I filmed, I filmed so much of, uh, Kayvon over the, the last couple of years and he was a great kid to talk to. And it was always fun. Always, uh, you'd watch him play tight end. You watch him play defensive end, but he looked more like a tight end out there. And there was some, you know, he was going through drills where there are guys that had a hundred pounds on him. You know, it, he just looked like a different kind of guy. And I think if you're a really good coach, you look at that and you see, well, is he? What's he going to be? Is he going to be this rush end guy? Is he going to like? Is he going to put his hand in the ground? What you have to figure out what you're going to do with him. But he's so athletic. I think that's up to the coaches to say we can make this work. We'll find a position. He's too good of a talent to not do that. I, I'm not sure that either Clay Helton or Chip Kelly, you know, had that in their their in their mind, or if they did, they they felt there was other factors that were like, well, there's this, that, that, blah, 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 whatever. Um, but he's he definitely would look different. So if you you look at him compared to some of the other guys at his position, um, yeah, he's super athletic, but he was a lot smaller. He looked like he was a different position group, you know. Um, and you know, there's other, whatever that, whatever you hear is going on. Like if, if you feel like he doesn't want to stay home 
Uh, you know, he did switch high schools and stuff, you know, Dorsey to um, Oaks Christian and, you know, it was really it seemed really enamored with the South uh, and some of the SEC schools. So maybe that was a turnoff. I don't know. It's hard to say, but I, I think there had to be a lot of factors and whatever, you know, if you're a Duck fan, you don't want to feel bad. You're like, well, USC or UCLA weren't recruiting them that hard. I mean, that. That could be their fault, not necessarily Caleb's fault. Well, and, and and let's be clear. USC and UCLA are recruiting at an historically low level. Yeah. Like horribly. So whatever they're like not doing at this moment, probably a good idea to do it. <laughs> like probably fine. So, yeah, you recruited Kayvon Thibodeau and got him. Great. He's probably going to be a dynamite player, like going to generate like 15 sacks his freshman year. I'm almost certain of it. Yeah. But. Just basically what I'm trying to explain is their rationale for not doing it. I am lending no credence to that rationale. It could be completely wrong. Probably is. But that's kind of what I've heard. So, yeah. Uh, Well, don't. Yeah. Don't. Hitler Really, I wanted to say something really mean, you know, to. No, I'm just kidding. We we love you, Hitler Day. I think he's going to be my gut is he's going to be really good. Um, for Oregon and, and, you know, maybe it's not going to be instant impact. Uh, you know, maybe it takes him some time. We'll see what, you know, how, how his body changes, uh, you know, longer time in the weight room and stuff. But I also thought Chip Kelly was going to kill it too at UCLA. So maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. We'll see. There's hope springs eternal. <laughs> Sweet. Oh, I guess we should wrap it up then Dave. Huh? Mm-hmm. We, this is pretty good. We, uh, man, we're getting close to two hours again. I guess we had two guests. We did. We had two guests. Um, they were both great. Thank you again to Shannon and RJ for joining us today. And uh, next week, we'll probably do UCLA and USC, right? Because they're both going to be breaking camp. Yeah, they'll be starting. Um, so that might not be a bad uh, idea. Yeah, I could. I, yeah, I didn't really get to get into like some of the the Graham Harrell stuff. We finally got the, the guy's been on campus for a month, and we finally got to talk to him. But yeah, we'll we'll talk about some of that next week. So yeah, if you if you happen to have it, so any- cute. It's so cute that you're like frustrated that you don't get an assistant coach when there's not even practice going on. Whereas <laughs> UCLA hasn't made an assistant coach available, I think, since Chip Kelly was hired. Really? Jeez. Yeah. I, I I could be wrong, but I I don't think so. Man, but if you have any SC UCLA questions, you can. Uh, Send those in, uh, you know, to the email address or tweet us, whatever you want to do. That's good stuff. All right. Well, that's David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham. Thanks for uh, tuning in to another edition of the Podcast of Champions, and we will talk to you next time.